Colossians chapter 3. And I have a picture I want to show you to start off with up here on the screen. So go to my next slide. So this bridge is somewhere in a nice neighborhood in Dallas. And this is not just any bridge. This is a special bridge to me. Um, This is the very bridge that I proposed to my wife on and asked her to be my wife. And so this past Wednesday, I took Courtney down a little um, to this neighborhood, and we had not been there since I proposed to her 10 years ago, or how many years ago it's been. And so we wanted to take a picture of the bridge and, and let you see it. And so, so this is the bridge I proposed to my wife on. And so um, it's a nice little neighborhood in Carruth Park in the middle of Highland Park, Dallas, which is like one of the most expensive little towns to live in in the whole U.S. And so my thinking was, if I propose to my wife in the middle of this park surrounded by all these awesome houses, it'll be like, hey, I can say to her, hey, look, I can never afford these houses. Do you still want to marry me? And she said, yes, anyway. So, um, so this is a place that we, we got engaged. But I want, you, I want to just have you think about this for a minute. So we, we got engaged. We went through the engagement process. We got married. We went on a honeymoon to St. John down in the Caribbean, which was awesome. And imagine if we got back from that honeymoon, and instead of moving into the same house, imagine if I said to her, well, that was a fun trip. I got an apartment across town. I'll see you later. It was great, right? Imagine if I did that. How would she react? How would my friends and family react? They would probably come to me and say things like, Dave, okay, what's the deal here? You got married to this awesome woman, and now you're just going to, like, move out and go get your own apartment and, and, and leave her? Is that how you're going to do this? And I, and I would say, what if I said to her, and my friends, no, no, I'm, we're still married. We're still going to be married. It's just going to be like, yeah, like whenever I want to come see her, I'll come see her. And whenever she wants to come and see me, she can come see me. But I'm going to live over here, and she'll live over here, and that'll just be easier on everyone. That just kind of makes sense, right? Imagine if I said that to someone. They would probably say things to me like, but Dave, you, you do not understand what marriage is. You don't understand what marriage is supposed to be. You're totally missing the point of what marriage is supposed to be. Because when you marry someone, it's supposed to, encha- it's supposed to change your entire life. You move in with this person, your life becomes their life. You don't live apart, you live with them, and it changes your entire life. Now this might sound crazy, but that's exactly what some of us do when it comes to Jesus, right? That's just how we treat Jesus as Christians for some of us. We commit to him, we surrender to him, we have the marriage, so to speak, but we don't, or we have the wedding, but we don't actually have the marriage. We don't let him change our life. We don't live with him. We try to live apart from him while still saying we're in this committed relationship with him. And so when you become a Christian, essentially you are joining your life with Christ. It's not to live apart from him, it's to live with him and to join your lives together. And, it, and because of that, it changes everything about your life. And so I want to answer a really big question for you this morning. The question I want you to wrestle with today is this. Once I become a Christian, how do I change? Once I become a Christian, how do I change? How is real change brought about once I commit my life to Jesus? 
And so look with us at Colossians chapter 3, verses uh, 1, 1 to 11 today. And here's what Paul says. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, I know whenever Paul writes, especially in Colossians, Colossians has to be one of the most head-hurting books in the New Testament. Because you read it and you just go, that all sounds great. What he just said sounds good, but I'm not quite sure I understood what he just said when he said that four-verse sentence. And so I want to look at, but you've got to really zone in here. So listen, guys, I want you to put your cell phones away. I want you to turn your attention to the screens, to the stage, like really tune in here because um, this is going to be a little bit of a longer talk than usual. I know it's normally long, so just kind of prepare yourselves. But I want you to know that what we're going to discuss this morning will change your life. It changed my life. It will change your life if you tune in, if you pay attention, if you give heed to God's word this morning. And so what I want you to know about Paul is before Paul says anything in his books about what to do, he always tells people who they are before he tells them what to do. Whenever you read like Ephesians or Galatians or Colossians, any of the books to the Corinthians, Paul always starts with who they are in Christ before he talks about what they're supposed to go and do. And as Christians, most of us get that reversed, where we tend to think of, okay, just tell me what I need to do. Just give me the behavior modification. Just tell me what I need to do to fix this in my life. And Paul always starts with, no, I'm going to tell you who you are first, and then tell you what you need to do. And this is what he is saying here. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So before he says what they should do, he tells them who they are. And so what does he say? He says they have died and they've been raised. And so what this means, when you become a Christian, the Bible's pretty clear that the Bible says you are dead to sin when you commit your life to Christ. I know it sounds nice, and you're probably wondering, okay, what does that mean exactly? Here's what it means. It means that sin's power has been broken over you. The power of sin, the reign of sin in your life is no longer relevant to you. Sin's power has been broken. You are now considered dead to sin. And you might ask the next question, which is, well then, why do I still struggle with sin if I'm dead to sin? And that's a great question. And we're going to answer this question as we go, but not, not immediately. So I'm going to leave you hanging for just a bit. But I want you to see this next logic here. And write this down if you have a pen and paper with you. No, go next back slide. Go back a slide. There you go. Here's a summary of what Paul's saying here. You were dead in your sins before Christ. Then Christ makes you alive when you become a Christian. Then Christ makes you dead to sin. So here's the logic Paul's using here. You were once dead to sin or dead to dead in your sins before Christ. Then Christ makes you alive. And then Christ makes you dead to sin. So instead of being dead in your sins, now you're dead to sin. 
once you become a Christian. And I know this is still kind of confusing, so I want you to think back again to, to marriage. Um, how many of you guys heard the, the British guy in the main service, the old British guy, the really old British guy, about a month ago? His name's Stuart Briscoe. Anybody hear that talk a few weeks ago? One of the statements that he said was he said, he said, he said that, um, that holiness is about becoming who you already are. Remember that, that statement? And he used the image of marriage. He said, he said whenever he um, got married many years ago to his wife, he said the pastor stood up at the end of the, of, the, of the service and said, by the power vested in me, I pronounce you husband and wife. Now, was there anything magical about those words? Not necessarily. But this pastor declares them married on their wedding day, and they spend the rest of their lives becoming what they already are, right? And so I'm doing a wedding this coming Saturday, and I'll do the exact same thing. I'm not, nothing special about me. I don't have some special power. I don't have some special hocus pocus to say, okay, you're married, voila, you know, it's just my words, I'm declaring it, and they're going to spend the rest of their lives becoming what they already are. Learning how to be married, even though they already are married. And in a sense, this is kind of how it is for us as Christians. You are learning how to live in the reality of you are dead to sin, even though God has already declared that you are, in fact, dead to sin. You are dead to sin. And so this is what God does. He declares you dead to sin and alive to himself. So every time you and I struggle with sin... We need to first be reminded who we are in Christ before we move on to what we're supposed to do. You might say it this way. You no longer do what you used to do because you are no longer who you used to be. So any kind of behavior change has to come out of this truth. You no longer do what you used to do because you are no longer who you used to be. Your identities change. Who you are is different. And God has declared that with power in your life. And you get to spend the rest of your life becoming who you already are in Christ. And so now because of this new identity in Jesus, look what it says to do. It says in the passage, it says, it says seek what is above. Because you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is. And once again, here we see Paul make this statement and we think, okay, that sounds great, Paul, but what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to set our minds on what is above? What does it mean to seek what is above? This is not, I want to clarify this, this is not head in the clouds thinking. If you've got a friend that comes to you and, you, and says, you know, so where do you want to go eat for lunch today? And if your response is, you know, who can think about lunch when my mind's on Jesus? This is not like some head in the clouds. You're never in reality. You're always like up there somewhere, and people are like, can you even relate to that guy? He's not even relatable. This is not what this is talking about. But this is talking about someone who gives Christ greater allegiance and greater loyalty than the things of this world. That for this person who sets their minds on what is above, they are giving Christ greater priority, 
greater loyalty, greater allegiance than what they give the people and things of this world. It means to look at earth from God's point of view. It means everything that you do on this earth, you are looking at it from his perspective. To put his glasses on as you think about and walk through your life. And so what happens when you seek what is above? I want you to flip really quickly to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. I don't have a slide for this, so you actually have to look at it. Can you guys turn those fluorescence light, fluorescent lights up there off, please? That's my kryptonite. I don't like those. All right, Matthew chapter 6. And I want you to see what Christ says here in verse 25. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, a you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what things is he talking about? He's talking about physical needs. These people are worried about what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to drink? Is God going to provide for us? And Jesus basically says, don't worry about the things of this world. Worry about the kingdom. Worry about me. Seek me first. Then everything else will be added to you. And I'm going to give you a quote that has literally changed my life and how I even view this passage. And it's by C.S. Lewis. And I want you to write this down. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about this concept at the bottom there. It says, you put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. You put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. I'll explain what I mean by this, what he means by this. What is a first thing? A first thing is something that is of first importance, like Jesus Really, really important. It is seeking the kingdom. It is setting your mind on what is above. It is seeking after a first thing. Jesus, and that's pretty much about it in that category. God, Jesus, that category right there, right? And then if you look at second things, what's a second thing? This would be boyfriend, girlfriend, career, education, what school to choose, money. These aren't bad things, but they're second things. And what he's saying, and this is also what Christ is saying in Matthew 6.33, is that if you put second things in that first place of importance, 
you're going to miss out on both. If you put first things first, Jesus, then everything else gets thrown in. Now, it doesn't mean that you can manipulate God into like, okay, so you're saying if I go on a mission trip to Rwanda, that God's going to give me a boyfriend? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can manipulate God into doing what you want to do based on how you respond. But he might, here's the deal, you walk with Jesus, love Jesus, commit your life to Jesus, and you make that the first thing of importance in your life, then he just might, out of the goodness of his grace and wanting to bless you, bless you with just an awesome, godly wife one day, an awesome, godly husband one day. And you're walking in that place, and second things get thrown in if God feels in his grace like he wants to bless you in that. And very often he does. Doesn't mean you deserve it or that I deserve it, but very often he does. And if you get these things reversed, if you, listen to me, if you get this reversed, you will destroy your life. You will destroy your life. I have seen this happen in countless ways, especially in the area of sexuality. There are people that as they walk through high school, they think, okay, I've got to, um, you know, God's holding out on me. God doesn't like to party like I like to party. God's holding out on me. He's holding, withholding pleasure from us. So I'm going to go, go after and get it the way I want to get it. And, and what happens to that person most of the time is it's fun for a while and it lasts for a while, but the long-term fruit is loneliness and despair and depression because they have not put first things first and let second things get thrown in. They put second things first, and now they've missed out on both. Because what happens is, when you put second things first, you miss out on the very thing you're chasing. You miss out. And so if, if I can let this idea... If there's one thing that can sink into your mind this morning, it's just going to be this idea. And if you get this wrong, you will destroy your life. You will destroy your life, and you'll miss out on both things that God wants for you, himself, but also the blessings that he wants to give to you in their proper context. In their proper context. And so if I set my mind on earth, then I lose what's beneath and what is above. I miss out on both. I miss out on both. There's a book I came across recently that has a pretty provocative title, but I wanted to show this to you. And it's not even a Christian. A Christian didn't write this. This is a non-Christian wrote this book. And what I love, though, is when I find books that are written by non-Christians that identify the sins of our culture. They, they, have, they have wrong solutions. I read part of this book, and she doesn't have the right solutions but she's identifying the right problem. And to me, that helps us as Christians to say, see, we're not the only ones saying this. Someone else identifies the problem. We have a different solution, but they're at least saying that the problem exists. And the name of her book is The End of Sex, How the Hookup Culture is Leaving a Generation Unhappy, Sexually Unfulfilled, and Confused About Intimacy. And she writes this book based on the college lifestyle that she did survey. She did research in college dorms and stuff and surveyed people. And, and she identified the hookup culture, which basically says this, because in years past, it was the culture said, you know, as long as you're in a committed relationship, sex before marriage is okay. It's perfectly fine. 
the marriage stuff is like old school. Who cares about that? But now things are even different now. Things are, things are now to a point where people are saying, no, there's not even any commitment necessary. Just sex, no strings attached. Who cares? That is prevalent in many colleges where you guys will be heading in a couple years. And so she's writing this book surveying these college students that are admitting what I just said to you, that the very thing they are chasing after, which is, which is meaning and, and, and having people that they can love and care for, they're not finding it in the culture that they're caught up in. And so as they chase after these things, they're missing out on the very thing that they're, they're chasing after and looking for. And I would say to you, I would say it this way, I would say her, her, her response is not that the Christian way of living is the best way. Her response is just that, well, we just have to make sure college students know if you're going to have sex, just be in a loving, committed relationship first. That's her solution. And I would say, well, doesn't that put us back in the same spot, doesn't it? There's no true commitment. You're chasing after a second thing and putting it ahead of a first thing. And we see this in our culture. You've got some questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one through four. Um, if there's not a leader at your table, just a student grab the, the sheet and go to questions one through four. Okay, look with us at verse 5. So this is a part where the next 10 minutes or so, just put your cell phones away, tune in, turn this way, cut out all distractions. I want you to hear this second part especially. Verse 5. So as a result of all that Paul has said, as a result of him saying, you are, you are dead to sin, you are declared by God be dead to sin, here's now what you're supposed to do in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So here Paul lists three categories of sin. He talks about sexual sin. He talks about anger. And he also talks about lying. And I want you to see from this list that these are the very kinds of sins that are very accepted in our culture, not just culturally, but in the Christian culture, right? These are sins that most Christians, if we did them or saw someone do them, we'd just be like, yeah, that's just, yeah, of course. Why would you not? Why would you not lie and cheat? Why would you not get physical with your boyfriend or girlfriend? That's, just what, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what we do. And so what I take comfort in Whenever I see these lists that Paul puts in the, in the New Testament, when Paul lists out like sexual kinds of sin, I always think about this. It's somewhat comforting just knowing that 
None of this is new. This has always been a struggle for humanity. Because I think most of us think like, well, you know, we got this thing called the internet. We got this thing with magazines. We got like strip clothes. We got all this stuff out there that's in our culture that maybe wasn't there in that culture, but we still see Paul listing out the same sins that we struggle with today. Because you don't get to say, well, if it wasn't because of the internet, I wouldn't struggle like I struggle. You don't get to say that. Because they dealt with the same kinds of sins back then that we deal with today. It's always been about the heart, and it's always been a heart issue. And so even though um, these sins are considered acceptable in Christian culture, I want to go back to the question, if we're dead to sin, then why do we struggle? If we're, if we're considered dead to sin, why do we still struggle with sin in the way that we know to be true in our own lives? And so um, if we have a new nature, why do we feel like we still have an old nature? I want you to think of it like this. Think of it like this. When you become a Christian, listen, tune in. Satan's distracting you right now. Tune in. He's like, don't listen. Someone honked the horn. Mm. All right. So think of it just like this. When you become a Christian, listen. When you become a Christian, the power of sin is broken, but the presence of sin remains. When you become a Christian, the, the power of sin, the reign of sin is broken in your life, but the presence of sin remains in your life sometimes, doesn't it? Think of it like this. Think of like two governments. I want you to imagine if there was a time when you lived under a certain government that was, that was evil and uh, there was a dictator involved, a tyrant, there was oppression. If you lived under that government, let's say you're set free from that government and now you've moved to another country that's got a democracy and there's freedom and it's different, whole different approach to life. There'd be times where you would think you're still living under the old reign and rule, right? I think about people that were, went through World War II, the Jews went through the Holocaust. Imagine some of them who lived in Eastern Europe. They're being gathered up by the Nazis and being put to death. Imagine the fear and trepidation they lived under. Just every day, they hear a gunshot. They hear boots marching in the streets. They hear guns. They hear bombs going off. They're, they're living in fear. And imagine those that survived the Holocaust, and once they moved to a place of freedom, imagine that when they, when they heard certain sounds, heard certain noises, that they still might think and, and revert back to old ways and revert back to living in fear, feeling like they're still living under the Nazi regime, even though the war is over. This is just what you and I experience in our life, is that even though you've moved to a new country, a new government, a new place, freedom under Christ, you still feel at times and you still live out your life as if you are living under the old power and reign of sin. And sometimes it's as if you're living under the old government. And so as a Christian, you are truly changed, but not totally changed. Sin has been dethroned, but not completely destroyed. And so the Christian life is all about becoming what you already are. It's all about working out what's already been worked into you. It's about becoming who you already are in Christ. And this is why Paul says, now that you know who you are, verse 5, put sin to death. And so you might say it this way, because we are dead to sin, because we are dead to sin, we have to put sin to death. Because we have been 
set free from the power and reign of sin, we now have to act upon that truth and actually put it to death in various ways in our life. And I want you to see how this plays out here. So because of our position, there is some action to take. And he uses pretty drastic language, doesn't he? I mean, Paul doesn't say, you know, put sin in a closet or put sin in timeout or put sin sort of away from you. He says, put it to death, kill it, make it die, make it hurt, right? Execute it, put it to death. And so he uses this drastic war language. And so I want to play on this, this for a minute. And I want you to think of, of putting sin to death in, in terms of a war, because it is a war. It really is a war. And so there's two ways in which we've got to put sin to death when it comes to this war that we're involved in. And the first way is, is an external war, and this is doing what is necessary to cut yourself off from sin. So there's kind of like this external war, and there's an internal war. The external war is doing whatever is necessary to cut yourself off from sin. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, what is Jesus saying when he says that? It's a controversial passage. Jesus is not saying that you literally gouge out your eye and cut off your hand if your eye caused you to sin. If that's the case, we'd all look like Gary DeSalvo right now, right? We would. We'd all be blind. I'm not, I'm not being, I'm being serious when I say this. None of us would have any eyes. We would have no arms, no legs. We'd be one big bloody stump, right? That's all we'd be if, if we follow this out to its conclusion. So what is Jesus saying when he says this? He's saying, you go through every extreme measure necessary to cut yourself, to cut off the lifelines of sin in your life. That means if, if Facebook is causing you to have identity issues and you're struggling with your identity and who you are, then maybe you cancel your account. Maybe you, if you struggle with pornography on the internet or anywhere else, that you cut off those lifelines and say to your parents, Mom, Dad, I can't have internet on my phone. It's too much temptation. I can't have internet in my room. It's too much temptation. I can't have Netflix streaming in our home because it's way too much temptation. It means you cut off the lifelines of sin. If there's a relationship that you're involved in, it's getting physical. That is a lifeline to sin. You say, look, we need to end this relationship because this is feeding into sin in my life. And so there's the external war. I'll call it behavior. There's the external war where you do whatever it takes to cut yourself off from sin. And I want you to know this morning, though, that that's not the only place that the war needs to happen. Because most of you hear a talk like this, and you walk out and you think, okay, i got to change my behavior. i got to change some stuff. I, gotta, I need to do this. I need to do that. I'll take care of it. I'll get it done. And you jump straight to action. But it's so important that you hear this this morning. It's not just the external war. It's also the internal war. And you've got to fight this war on two fronts the external war and the internal war. And the internal war looks like this. Or the way that you fight it looks like this. 
the first thing you have to do when you fight the internal war, number one, is remember that all sin is idolatry. All sin is an idolatry of the heart. And so when you recognize that you're sinning in certain areas of your life, the response should not just be, yeah, I need to cut that out. I just need to stop doing that. Yeah, Internet's bad for me, so I just need to get rid of that, just cut it out. But you've got to go a little bit deeper than that and say, okay, what? this is the external war, but what's happening internally in me to cause me to go to this kind of sin? You've got to start to think deeper about your sin than just externals. You've got to, think, you've got to see it as heart idolatry, because that's what it is. The root of all sin is idolatry, and it always starts in the heart. And I want to show you how this works. Think about this. Why is it that some people steal? I would say they steal because they think security is found in money and possessions, and they're trying to find their security in those things. So they take from someone else what's not theirs because they want security. There's a heart idol in place. Why does someone lie? This is one that really gets us because lying and cheating is so prevalent even in the Christian culture, it's just mind-boggling. How many Christian students I've talked to or heard from that say, yeah, cheating is just like no big deal. Not at all. That's lying. That's cheating. And for you to misrepresent yourself, why does someone lie? They lie because... They want someone else to accept them or think highly of them or get a reward for something that they don't deserve. That's why we, let, why we lie, why we cheat. There is a heart idol behind that. Why does someone sin sexually? They think God is holding out on them. They think God's not a good God. They think God does not have the best plan. They think that what's theirs, what's rightfully theirs, they're going to take. And they see no issue with it. Why does someone get angry unrighteously? For most of us, it's about respect. Your identity is dependent on your ability to generate respect. And you feel like, if I don't have this respect from other people, then I'm going to get angry at them for not giving it to me. And it becomes about, I've got to have a certain kind of respect as I, as I see it so I can feel good about myself. Why does someone speak with a, a foul mouth? Again, they want to be accepted. They want to look tough. They want to be received by peers. They want to be respected. And I want to show you now how there's two elements to this internal war. The first is acknowledge the idolatry in your heart of the sin. But there's a second step involved, and it's this. Remember that Jesus offers you something better. Remember that Jesus offers you something that the thing you're chasing can't offer you. I want to show you how this works out in everyday life. Why does someone steal? Because they think security is found in money and possessions, and Jesus gives you that security. Why does someone lie? Because they want people to think something is true of them. We want human approval, and Jesus offers you that very approval. Why does someone sin sexually? They think God's holding out on them. They forget that the whole point of oneness in relationship is to remind us of his oneness with us. And listen, if you try to jump the gun and and you think that you're going to get oneness with another person, 
and you're not doing it in the way that God says to do that, which is first have oneness with him, a relationship with him, and let that impact how you do relationship and marriage, you get those things reversed, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your life. Why does someone get angry? For most, it's about respect. Your identity is dependent on your ability to generate respect. And know this, Jesus was disrespected at the cross, so now you have the power to not get angry when someone disrespects you. Because that was absolved at the cross. Why does someone speak with a foul mouth? Again, they want to be accepted, want to look tough, want to be respected, and Jesus already accepts you. You've got to understand this, that the things you're chasing after in these things on the earth are the things that Jesus really wants to give you in himself. They're the things that he really wants to give you in a life with him. But when you chase those things on the earth, second things, and put them in place of first things, you miss out on both. You miss out on both. And so these are the things that I want you to be thinking on and reflecting on and remembering and bring these ideas into the moment of temptation when you're feeling tempted towards sin because Jesus wants holiness from his followers. Listen. Jesus wants holiness from his followers. Anything else is like a wedding with no marriage. Anything else is like you have the ceremony, you say you're committed, but your life is apart from him. You are living apart from him. And as a Christian, you don't get to live apart from Jesus. Jesus wants you to live with him, and he wants you to be rooted in holiness throughout your life. Go ahead and finish with your last few discussion questions at your tables.